Psalm 145 is our text for today. This is our final sermon in the series that we've been doing this spring, going through this selection from the Psalms. And this is a perfect text, I believe, to to finish on and to begin to transition into what we're doing next. Uh, The summer, the focus for our summer again this summer is going to be on prayer. We're going to start next Sunday, our second annual, what I'm calling it now, our second annual Summer of Prayer as a Church in which we, we ask everyone to commit themselves to praying regularly, specifically for New Life Burbank as a church, and to try to commit ourselves again to this practice that for so many of us is elusive and fleeting, and that is a regular time of communion with God in prayer. And so we've got a sort of two-pronged approach to it this summer. We're going to have the booklet, like we had last summer, to help us and to guide us and give us a little bit of direction. So we're not just asking you to sit down and to pray. Sometimes that feels like a... a a hard task if you don't have something in mind. What do we pray for? So we'll have the booklet, and that booklet is going to be focused on praying through the ACTS acronym for prayer, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, a simple acronym that helps us structure our prayers and to give us some guidelines for praying. The booklet is structured around that, just teaching us how to commune with God in prayer, how to, how to be able to do more than just take our shopping list to God, which is a important thing to do, and that's sort of our default, but we want to grow in our prayer lives. And then the second approach this summer is that during July, I'm also going to be preaching through the phrases of the Lord's Prayer. So we're moving after today into preaching through the Lord's Prayer. And so as we begin to focus next week on the idea of adoration in prayer, this is a great psalm to end on, Psalm 145, because it is a psalm of adoration. It's a psalm of praise of worship to the Lord. Let me say one more introductory matter before I read it. Psalm 145 is an acrostic psalm. It's one of the eight acrostics in the Bible, at least in the book of Psalms, um, which means each verse starts with consecutive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you look at verse 13, uh, in your Bible, most likely that verse, if it's there, Uh, has two stanzas to it. The first stanza says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. And then there should be a stanza that's perhaps set off in brackets, or perhaps it has asterisks on it, that says, The Lord is faithful in all his words, and kind in all his works. Now that line does not exist in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts. That would be the, what we would call the N line of this acrostic. That's the letter N. But in the oldest manuscripts, it's actually a, a defective acrostic. It has no line for the letter N. It's just missing. And so we've found other very old manuscripts that supply this line. Now, we don't know. Perhaps that was original and it got, and it got lost in some of the manuscripts, or perhaps this was someone's uh, clever attempt to supply the missing letter of the acrostic. But that's why we have this verse that is in brackets to let us know that it's there, it's in some old manuscripts, but it's not in all of them. So the content of that verse is, of course, very faithful to content through the rest of the Bible, to say the Lord is faithful in his words and kind in his work, kind in his works. That's true, we don't have a problem with that, but we just want to know why that is there. Armed with that knowledge, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. 
Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful, glorious portion of your word is here for us in Psalm 145. I pray that your spirit, which inspired these words to be written for our benefit, will now open the eyes of our hearts, that we may read them, believe them, act on them, treasure them up in our hearts. Father, that we might see the beauty of our King shining forth through this text, that our hearts might be drawn to worship with David, to worship and to speak the praise of the Lord and to bless your holy name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In the spring of 2007, I did something that I, I probably wouldn't recommend that anyone else do anymore. I, I skipped church one Sunday in order to attend a sporting event. And again, I probably wouldn't have, have done that, but, but you have to understand this was not just any sporting event. Somebody that week had given me a free ticket to the Sunday round of the Masters. And, and, and if, if you're a golf fan or know anything about golf, I don't have to explain why that's a, an attractive offer and awfully hard to turn down. Uh, that is, the Masters is the most historic and most iconic golf tournament in the world. And that was, Tiger Woods was in contention that day, and of course that was back before he became a villain. Uh, and, and so it was still fun to root for him at that time. But uh, I went, and it's just a, it's an amazing experience. In many ways, it's almost more like a, a pilgrimage than just a, an experience. If you know anything about the Masters, you know that that this one tournament is held up above every other tournament. This golf course in Augusta, Georgia, is held up above every other golf course. It, the, the way people speak of it, it, they speak of it in these religious, religious ways with hushed tones expressing their reverence for the, the very course that they walk upon. And people literally make their pilgrimages there to see these different portions of the course and to, to give their homage to the gods of golf who walk among us in that place. And in fact, when I got home that day, I, I had enjoyed my trip, of course, but I told Aubrey, 
even though I hadn't been in church that day, I still felt like I had been in a place of worship. And I did not mean that in a good way. (laughs) I meant that I felt like there had been all sorts of idolatrous worship going on there that day, simply the way people treated the whole tournament, the way they treated the very course itself, thinking that, that this was as though we were back to the Garden of Eden. This was heaven on earth being here. But the truth is, it's not just at the masters that things like that happen. It happens everywhere. It happens every day. The very nature of us as people reflecting the fact that we're made in the image of God is that we are a people who worship. That's part of what it is to be human is that we are prone to worship. Every person worships. Whether they're religious or not, we worship. The only question is, what do we worship? Is our worship focused on a proper object such as the Lord God himself? Or are we worshiping created things? Are we worshiping golf tournaments or athletes? Worship is everywhere. What we need is instruction in worship. What we need is, is to learn from God's word how to focus our worship, how to do it properly and correctly. And what we have here in Psalm 145, uh, I had been thinking earlier, this is a good introduction to worship, but this is not an introduction. This is master's level teaching on the subject of worship. This is a teaching from David to guide our hearts into the worship of the Lord and to spur us on in it. And I I want to ask the text three questions today and hear its answer. Why do we worship? How do we worship? Who do we worship? Three easy questions that the text gives us. First, why do we worship? What is it that fuels us as human beings to worship God specifically? Why God? And it's very simple in this text. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Great is the Lord... And greatly to be praised, there's a very straightforward logic in that verse that the reason the Lord is greatly to be praised is because God is great. It's great. It's, it's his attributes. It's his personality. It's his character traits. It's, it's everything about God that makes him who he is, that makes him great. He is great. And because of this simple theological objective truth about God, therefore he is greatly to be praised. So the reason that we come to worship God specifically and not other things is that God deserves it. God deserves it more than anything. God is great. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. He said, The foundation of worship in the heart is not emotional, but it's theological. The foundation of worship in our heart is not emotional, it's theological. That is, what drives our worship is not our feelings. It's not this overwhelming sense that we're in a place. It's What drives our worship is theological truth. It's theological objective truth about who God is. That's what moves your heart to worship. It's not emotional stimuli. It's theological truth that's that's clearly stated to us from God's word, that we read God's word and it tells us who God is and that objective truth about God ought to be met with this response of worship. That doesn't mean that our worship ought to be cold and unfeeling and and, and bare of any emotions whatsoever. But it means that at the root of our worship, what, what makes God worth worshiping and what drives us most deeply is, is theological truth. It's the truth that God is great and greatly to be praised. And the truth is that our view of God makes all the difference in affecting our worship. I actually think that our view of God makes all the difference in, in every aspect of life. That if we have a high view of God, 
that, that you're probably, if that describes you having a high view of God, understanding his attributes, that you're probably more regularly driven to worship God. Not just on Sundays in corporate worship, but, but that w- will happen more regularly if you have a high view of God. If you have a low view of God, you will not find it easy to worship God. William Plummer, an older commentator, said, unless we have great thoughts of God, our thoughts of sin will be low, our sense of obligation will be feeble, and our praises dull. And unless we have great thoughts of God, he said, our praises will be dull. Psalm 145 is not dull. If we read this psalm, we hear David just overflowing and exulting in worship of the Lord. It's not dull at all because David has great thoughts of God. And when you have great thoughts of God, it inspires worship in all of life. When you have great thoughts of God, it changes your thoughts of, of you and other people and your situation in life. Everything comes under this umbrella that God is great. Think of the book of Romans to illustrate this. The book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, are are some of the most precise theological writing in the New Testament that Paul just very, in a structured way, lays out theological truth of the gospel for us. And you get to chapter 9, and 9, 10, and 11 in particular, those are some deep waters of theology. So much so, it's it's easy to get intimidated by those chapters and to say, I'll just leave this to the commentators and to the academics and the scholars, I'll let them figure this out, but... But think of how it affected Paul to spend that time thinking theologically, to think great thoughts of God. He gets to the end of Romans 11, and what does he say? He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. He's thinking great thoughts of God, and the deeper those thoughts go, the greater his heart is lifted in praise. So it seems like he just can't control himself anymore. At the end of that chapter, he's for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. He's exploding in praise and worship to God because he's been thinking such thoughts of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God that it leads him to worship. And what we do here at New Life Burbank is, is we try to follow this model. We try to reflect this truth in our worship here at New Life Burbank. In fact, if you look in your bulletin, if you take it and look at the inside cover of the bulletin, per- perhaps you see this weekly. We, at the top of the inside cover is where our mission statement is. And it says, New Life Burbank exists to give glory to God through worship, nurture, and witness. And here's the line, all fueled by the gospel of Christ. What that last line is saying to us is that is saying that all of our worship All of our nurture and all of our witness is fueled by the greatness of the gospel of Christ. That what drives us in worship is is the gospel. That we look to Christ first. And the more we see Christ and the more we understand his glory and the more we believe what he's done for us, the more we see how his blood covers our sins, how he brings us into the presence of God, how he forgives us, how he shows us the mercy and the justice of God, the more we have these great thoughts of Christ, the more that drives our worship. It fuels our worship. It also drives our nurture, and it also drives our witness. The greater our thoughts of God, the greater we will do at that which we exist for. And we try to reflect that in our mission statement here at New Life Bourbon. That only thinking big thoughts of God will drive us to worship. 
Only thinking big thoughts of God will drive us personally, in our hearts, to worship. That is what will keep us from just going through the motions. Because that is the death of a church and it's the death of an individual also. Is If you're not worshiping in the hearts, but your, your religious life, your Christian life, it worship is just marked by just going through the motions. You go and you do it and you sing, but there's no life in your heart. And the way to avoid that is by thinking theologically first and letting truth about God from his word move your heart. Now, it could be that you read Psalm 145 and, and you might admire David's passion in here and you might really admire the way that he's able to write about the Lord, in, but you say, I, I'm just not there right now. I don't, I, I don't really resonate with that. I can admire what he's saying and, and I know in my mind that this is true, that God is worthy of worship. That's, that's objective truth. I can recognize that, but you don't, you don't feel it as much in your heart. And I, it's like the Grand Canyon... The Grand Canyon is beautiful. The Grand Canyon is it's awe-inspiring if you've been there and stood on that south rim, maybe especially at sunset, and you just look. If, if you're there, I, I cannot stand there without saying to whoever I'm with, look, it's beautiful. Look, look at the layers of stone and the way the light hits it. It's, it's truly awe-inspiring. But here's the truth. I've known most of you for about a year now. I probably haven't told you about the Grand Canyon. We don't talk about that. And in my mind, I know the objective truth that the Grand Canyon is beautiful. I know that to be true. But my heart is not really affected with that on a day-to-day basis. Why? I haven't been there in a long time. If we were there, I would think it, but I haven't been there. And the truth is, for some of us, that's how our hearts are with God. We know in our minds that God is glorious, that he's righteous, he's awe-inspiring, He's worthy of worship. We know that. That's not news to us. We haven't been there in a long time. We're not regularly in communion with God. We don't often spend time in his presence. And, and when you're not there, your heart is not affected with the truth. You can know it in your mind, but you're not affected with it. You, don't, you do not extol your God and your king like David does because you're not affected. You haven't been there. And, and so the solution then, if you're not affected, is to go there, to spend time. To, to read texts like this and to meditate on the wonder of the majesty of God, to spend time thinking these truths, learn these truths, meditate on these truths, and that's what affects your heart, to bring it into that spirit of worshiping the Lord. So why do we worship? We worship because God is great, and therefore he's greatly to be praised. The second question, how do we do it? How should we worship? One of the most remarkable features of this psalm there's all the different ways that David talks about worshiping God throughout it. Think of Psalm 119. We think that's the psalm that's all about the scriptures, the word of God, and uses all these different synonyms to, to convey truth about the word of God. And I think what Psalm 119 does for the Bible, Psalm 145 does for worship. All these different synonyms, if we just listen again to the first few verses, I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame and send 
of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Do you hear all the different ways? He's trying to, to put it every different way to express what he's doing. Extol, bless, praise, commend, declare, meditate, speak, pour forth, sing aloud, give thanks. All these aspects of David's worship, most of which are pretty similar, some of which just have a few differences that, that we extol to tell of his greatness and to list all his benefits. We're to bless him, that is to, to speak well of him for his goodness and generosity, to praise him, or to commend him. How do you commend something? That's when you recommend something to somebody else. That's an act of worship when you commend God, and he says one generation will commend you to the next generation. Or meditate. That's talking too, but it's talking to yourself. I will meditate, I will internalize, I will take these aspects of God and I'll tell them to myself. I'll, I'll speak, that is, it fills my conversation. That's what I talk about because that's what my heart is so affected with. So I'll pour forth. I just, I'll just go on and on about it. I just won't even stop. And I'll sing aloud to, as if it's just speaking it now is not enough anymore. It's not enough just to speak because that doesn't do justice to the beauty of it. He says, I'll sing of this. I'll sing of this and show others how much it means to me. But notice also, every single one of these, the object is always God and God's glory, God's attributes, God's personality, his character traits. All of them are God-centered. He says, I'll extol what? I'll extol my God. I will bless you and praise your name. I will meditate on your blessings. I'll pour forth your goodness, sing aloud of your righteousness. Everything he does is God-focused in its orientation. To speak of the Lord and to sing of him in all his works. And this is a truth for us that the purpose of all these words for worship is, is not that we will draw attention to David in this psalm and say, wow, he, he's really good at this whole worshiping business. No, the, the whole purpose is to draw our attention to God, to point to him and to put our focus on him. But David himself is, is struggling to find sufficient ways to, to worship the greatness of God he must communicate it as, as well as he can to communicate the, the beauty and the glory of God that's worth our worship. I think one of, the, one of the troubles of our age is that we live in a very image-conscious society. And it's very easy for us, even in our worship, to become very self-centered, to become very self-aware in our worship. And it's hard for us to truly enter into really what we would call heartfelt worship to enter into that because we are, we're so self-conscious. That's just the way we are these days. And, and even in our worship, we become self-conscious and we think about whether we're doing it right, if it looks good enough, if it sounds good enough, if it's attractive enough. And it's hard to get lost in the contemplation of the perfections of God when you're thinking about how you look while contemplating those perfections. It's hard to enjoy communion with God when when the only question is, is, is this communing with God attractive? Are we making it look good? Your thoughts are not on God, they're on you. And this psalm of praise is all about God. It rehearses the, pra the praises of God. And it recites what God is about. I think what we need for us as a church, for our society, is, is we don't need better methods for worship. We don't need better techniques. We need better thoughts of God. We need our hearts to be more affected by being in the presence of God, experiencing his perfections and his goodnesses. We need that clearer picture of who God is, 
that's the goal of our worship, that in, in every part of this worship service, everything we do, singing, praying, preaching, the sacraments, is to hold up a picture of God's glory, to hold up the picture of His grace, and to draw our eyes to Christ. And just to say, look, I, I can't do any better than, than that, to hold up a picture of Christ and say, look at the beauty and the glory, the grace and the mercy that's ours in Christ Jesus, and to allow our hearts to be affected with that. And so, David can't find just one word to describe this. He needs ten words. He needs his entire life to, to be centered and focused around this worship of God. And so that's, that's how we worship. It's by coming into God's presence and, and focusing on him and letting all of our emotions and thoughts and words center around Christ. But who do we worship? Who do we worship? That's the bulk of this psalm. The bulk of Psalm 145 is David is rehearsing all the attributes and actions of God that make him so worthy of all of our praise and adoration. And, and we can't preach it unless we're preaching about God, unless we're talking about his perfections, who he is. And he tells us mostly three things. First, God is the covenant God who saves. He's the kingly God who reigns. And he's the merciful God who sustains. This is who David sees when he comes to worship. He's First, he's the covenant God who saves. Look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. David here is in the middle of rehearsing all the attributes of God, and many of them are packed into these verses. His grace, his mercy, his patience. His covenant love, his goodness is all listed here. But, but the reason this verse is particularly interesting, especially verse 8, is particularly interesting because he's quoting word for word from Exodus 34. That's Exodus 34, 6. He's just quoting it here in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now why Exodus 34? Well, it, it tells us truth about God, but we also need to remember where that is. What is Moses doing in Exodus 34? He's, he's on the top of Mount Sinai. He's in the presence of God. God has just brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the, the Red Sea. They've come across into the desert, into Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments. We just had the episode with the golden calf, and now Moses is again on Sinai with God, and God is renewing his covenant to them. He, he's again pledging his love to them. This was the question. Given this golden calf, this terrible sin of idolatry, what now? And God calls Moses up and, and he proclaims that his glory is his love is steadfast and covenant love that will not be taken away from his people. He's saying that God is a God who saves. God is a God who is, is committed through his covenant actions to his people. That he saves his people. He rescues his people. And even our sins do not get in the way of God's salvation of us. That God is committed to us. He says this is his covenant love, this steadfast love, this hesed love of God that, that is a love at all costs for his people. And when David thinks great thoughts about God, this is what he thinks. He says, God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God who saves his people, who does not let his people go. Even when we sin against him, he is our covenant Lord. He's our God who loves us. His love will not let us go. And so these are his great thoughts. This, this is our God. 
These are the great thoughts of God. He saves us. We belong to him. Therefore, what do we do? We bless and extol him for his covenant faithfulness because he's a covenant God who saves. He's also a kingly God who reigns. This is verses 10 through 13. Actually, it begins in verse 1. He sets the whole tone for the psalm saying, I will extol you, my God and King. But now verse 10, he says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is a great theme in this song is that, that God is the king. He's the universal king. He's the eternal king. That his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And he says in verse 10, All your saints shall bless you for your kingdom, for your rule, for your reign and your power. Perhaps some of you have watched some soccer games this last week. It's easy to get caught up in the World Cup, even if you're not a soccer fan by nature, which I'm not, even if you're not a fan of adults who bite other adults when they don't get their way, which I'm not. It's still easy to get caught up in the World Cup fervor. Why? Because it is at its root. This is a battle of kingdoms. It's one country against another country. It's sort of the same as the Olympics. And it's easy to get caught up in that and to root for our kingdom and to root against the bad guys. Because we find identity in that. And David is here saying, my kingdom is the kingdom of God. And it's fun to get caught up in excitement over that because God is an eternal king. He protects his people. He saves and rules his people. And he destroys his enemies. And that's a reason for glorying in God. When we get to the end, verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. He says he can rejoice in that, that our king is the king who gets his way. And our hope is that God is the eternal king and his kingdom is forever. There's great hope in that. There's great encouragement in that. That's good news. That God rules over all. Every molecule and every galaxy is in his control. The whole world, the affairs of politicians is in his control. The presence of any individual trial in our life is under his control. The presence of any individual blessing in our life is under his control and dominion. That's why he praises him for being a king who reigns. Spurgeon says no topic is more profitable for humility, joy, hope, and obedience than the reigning power of the Lord our God. He says no topic of meditation is more useful to us in encouraging our hope and our joy and our obedience and our humility than thinking on the reigning power and the kingliness of our God. He is a king who reigns. He's a a covenant God who saves. He's a kingly God who reigns. He's also a merciful God who sustains. Verse 14, he says, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. So not only does he save and does he reign, but he is merciful and he sustains. If we read these last seven verses, it says, God sustains the weak and the hurting. It says, He provides food for all creatures. He draws near to those who draw near to him. says he answers prayer. It's all different things about God that show his mercy and his sustaining grace towards his people. That he loves us and he cares for us even when we're falling and even when we're bowed down. It's the Lord who upholds you. Just think of that. Hear that contrast. 
We've just read 13, that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures through all generations. He's majestic, he's glorious, and he's resplendent, and he's eternal and transcendent. Our first thought would probably be, wow, this, this God is probably a little hard to have access to. He's probably reserved and he's probably proud. But, but then what does he say? That same God upholds those who are falling. He raises up. And it doesn't say he, he doesn't delegate that task out. It says the Lord, Yahweh, upholds those who are falling. It's that same king whose reign is eternal who also mercifully, tenderly, in a fatherly way, cares for his people. He takes care of them. He dwells with the lowly. He dwells with those who are hurting. He dwells with those who are falling and bowed down and he hears their prayer and he's near to them. He's near to them. And it seems, if we just look at this psalm, that, that this is the aspect of God's character that holds David's attention the most. You even just count the verses. He has two verses on God's covenant love. He has four verses on his kingly reign. But here's seven verses on his mercy. Just going through, scrolling through all different aspects of his mercy that he hears prayer. That he gives food to every creature. That he draws near to his people. He preserves those who love him. David's worship is fueled by, by this idea that this is his God, that this is his Savior. Not only is he great and majestic, yes, but he also dwells with us. He's also near to us when we call on him. He's a tender father, and he comes to the aid of the broken and the hurting. What other God is like this? Look at verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. That is, he is a, a perfect God of complete conviction. And he always does what is just and holy. He's righteous in all his ways. And he's kind in all his works. That means he's always perfectly merciful, loving. Who else pulls off the, this this combination of traits. See, we, we often play these against each other. Either, either you're a person of principle, you stand up for what's right, and you just walk over the people who get hurt in the process, or you're a kind and you're a loving person and you care for the people, even if it means bending your principles from time to time. But David looks at God, he says, he's righteous in everything, and he's kind in everything he does. These are the perfections of God that are driving David's worship. This is why he says, your greatness is unsearchable. Your greatness is unsearchable, or, or the NIV, as I first learned this verse, says, uh, your greatness no one can fathom. That's what it means to be unsearchable. That's beyond our finding out. We can't fathom the depths of God's greatness. That it goes deeper than our brains can go. His greatness is unsearchable. He's righteous and he's kind. He's loving and he's just. This week I, I was accused of making a dad joke, which I assume is synonymous for a good joke. Uh, I, I was scooping Judah some ice cream one evening this week and, and I gave him just a tiny little bite and I put it in the bowl and I put a spoon and I said, here you go, Judah, here's your ice cream. And of course, my dad used to do that all the time to me. Sometimes he'd be pouring a drink and just pour one little step and he here you go. And we all laugh, and Aubrey called that a dad joke this week when I did that to Judah. But, but here's the thing. When I give him just that, that tiny little bit, he immediately laughs, and he says, no, dad, and he kind of rolls his eyes at me. But he knows it's a joke. 
He, he knows instinctively. I don't have to tell them that that's a joke. And he doesn't get angry that, that that's all I gave him. He's not fearful. That, oh, no, what, what's gotten into my dad? He doesn't care about me anymore. He knows that's a joke. He thinks, you know, he knows that I'm his father. And for all my flaws in being his father, he knows that it's just ridiculous to think that I wouldn't take care of him. And he, he laughs at that idea. It's ridiculous to think that I'm not going to hear him when he calls for me. It's ridiculous to think that I wouldn't go pick him up when he falls. That I'm not going to hear and take care of his needs. That I'm not going to protect him from danger. That's, that's ridiculous. And in a way, that laughing at the joke, it's a sweet little picture of his trust. That, he knows that's a joke. Me not take care of him. What an idea. And here, here's David pointing us to the Lord. And he's saying to us that, of course God will take care of you. That would be ridiculous to think that our covenant God who saves us, who has committed his love to us, who reigns, of course he's going to take care of us. He says that's ridiculous to think that he doesn't hear you when you cry to him, that he's not going to pick you up when you're falling, that he's not going to uh, uh, raise you up when you're bowed down. How could he not? He says he's committed to us. He's made his covenant with us. He sent his son to die for us. We know he's committed We know he has the resources. He's the eternal king whose dominion is forever. We know he can do it. And we know that's his character. This is who he is. He's a God who is merciful. He's a God who sustains the righteous. He's a God who loves his people and draws near to them when they cry to him. He says, of course God is going to take care of you. That's ridiculous to think that he wouldn't do that. And that's why in verse 21, David makes his resolution, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And then he gives an invitation. And let all flesh bless his holy name. David is committed. I will speak his praise and let all flesh, bre- flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. He invites us to join in and to say, look at who God is. Consider the character of God and bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. We pray that your spirit will even now begin to be at work in our hearts, using the word of God to affect our hearts with the greatness of God, to draw out our worship, to draw out our worship and to look on you with eyes that perhaps we haven't seen you with before, to contemplate your goodness to us, to contemplate your fatherly care and your tender provision for us and your love for your people. And may we praise with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Our song of reflection, hymn number 57, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Let's stand and offer our praise to the Lord.